Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. One month after Jeanette disappeared, her family received a tip that she may have been seen at a restaurant all the way in Louisiana. The tip came from an acquaintance of the family. A man who had attended the same high school as Jeanette believed he saw her at a Golden Corral restaurant in Alexandria in the presence of another female. This individual gets in touch with Jeanette's family on Facebook and sends them some photos he took of the two women he saw in the restaurant. We couldn't believe it because she looked so much like her. She looked so much like her. The woman in the pictures had bandages over one of her eyes and was heavy set with black hair. She looked remarkably like Jeanette. The Castrions called the restaurant to ask them to preserve the video surveillance. They also flew to Louisiana to see it for themselves because they couldn't wait for the video to be sent in the mail. Once they saw the video surveillance, though, they knew for certain it wasn't her. Then, in February of 2016, there was another suspect sighting of Jeanette. This time, closer to home, right in Las Cruces, New Mexico, where Jeanette lived. Two women who were selling puppies met with a man and a woman in a laundromat, and they believed the woman looked just like Jeanette. They recall the man saying that the woman had always wanted a puppy. He told them he was caring for her after her wealthy parents had passed away, since all of her other relatives abandoned her. They thought the man was acting very strange. They also felt like the woman was being held against her will. But Las Cruces police followed up on the lead. Turns out it's a woman named Kathy, and that man really was her legal guardian. Several years go by with no new information. And then, finally, a break in the case. From The Labyrinth and Case File Presents, I'm Octavia McHenry. On August 5th, 2018, three years after Jeanette disappeared, a field biologist discovered a body in a remote canyon near Rustler Park. Well, parts of a body, anyway. She found a human femur and a long braid of hair. Amanda Moores and two other biologists were under contract with the U.S. Forest Service to study the Mexican spotted owl. During their survey, they were camping in the forest and they had a dog with them, a catahoula they called Maggie. While Amanda Moores was busy working, Maggie proudly ran towards her and dropped a large bone onto her lap. I tried interviewing Amanda Moores, but the Forest Service wouldn't allow it. Here's Detective Hoke. And they looked at that and they thought, God, that, that, is that a bear's bone? Because there aren't bears not lying up there. And they weren't sure, but then, so they started to look around. They weren't focused now on birds. Now they were focused on actually inspecting the ground and the brush around there. And it's very thick. The vegetation is very thick. 
And then they came across the braid of hair. Actually, Moores and the other biologists searched the area they believed Maggie had found the bone in, but they couldn't find anything else. It was, once again, Maggie that found the hair. She walked towards them with a mass of hair in her mouth. When they inspected it, they saw that it was partially braided. That's when they realized they had just found a human. Amanda Moores took the bones with her and personally brought them to the sheriff's office. The location where these remains were found is called Long Park. You might remember that name. Long Park is a very small, secluded campground about a mile and a half southeast of Rustler Park, where Jeanette was camping with her parents. The simplest way to reach Long Park from Rustler Park is through a very rough forest service road that connects the two. If you take that road from Rustler Park, you need a four-wheel drive because it's too bumpy for a regular vehicle. The forest road dead ends at Long Park in the form of a small loop at the summit of that mountain. And this loop is also a campground. One of the highest points of the Cherokee mountain range. Not very many people will do it there and camp out, although it's because it's so secluded. The ones who do go up there like their peace and quiet. It's hard to explain a location to someone who hasn't been there, but I'll do my best to describe it. Once you get to that summit where the road ends, which is called Long Park, if you reached it by car, you need to park and continue on foot. There is a zigzag gate designed to keep large wild animals on one side and preventing motor vehicles from entering on the other side. On the other side of that fence, if you keep walking, the terrain quickly becomes steeper. There's a drop of about 600 feet at increasing gradients with, at the very bottom, a small canyon. It's almost a ledge, almost straight down. It's, it's not quite straight down. I mean, it, it's, it's a slope, and you can crawl down that slope, but you've got to be very careful, or, or you can fall and hurt yourself. Hell, you could probably kill yourself. She was found at the bottom of that. I say she. The, I, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I keep on... I think this is Janet. I really do. The following morning, Cochise County Search and Rescue conducted a mission to try and recover any other remains that might be there. We sent a team down in there to retrieve that stuff. And while we were doing this, it's in such a remote area that one of our search and rescue people actually broke their leg. We had to actually do an airlift on them to get them out. No other evidence, be it skeletal remains or clothing, were found, and search and rescue planned to return in the late fall. Since, as the report says, heavy ground vegetation was hampering the search effort. They didn't seem to have a firm timeline as to when they'd return. And regardless, it wasn't going to be anytime soon. And Jeanette's family was, not surprisingly, unhappy with that. So they gathered some friends and organized their own search party the following weekend. They scoured the area and located 16 more bones that appeared to be human, as well as a few items of clothing. The items were all scattered about the canyon pretty far apart. They didn't touch or retrieve the bones, but instead placed little flags near each finding so that they could be collected by professionals. This is Fabian. So later they sent somebody out there to to retrieve them. And it's my understanding that they only found the ones we found. I don't think they went out and looked anymore. All of the remains were brought to the Pima County office of the medical examiner in Tucson, where they were looked at by forensic anthropologist Dr. Bruce Anderson and forensic pathologist Dr. David Winston. They determined that out of the 16 bones the family had found, 
all were human except for one, and all were likely to belong to the same body. The skeletal remains consisted of fragments of long bones, that means bones from extremities, a rib, a vertebra, and of course the braided brown hair. The bones were sun-bleached and cracked. They had been chewed on by wild animals. The braided hair measured more than 24 inches and was dark brown to black in color. Also, in the same remote canyon, they found a shoe, fragments of jeans, and parts of a bra. According to Dr. Anderson's report, it wasn't possible to determine the sex or the height of the individual. But what he did remark is that they likely belonged to an adult with some degree of Native American ancestry, and they had probably died sometime between 2011 and 2016. The postmortem report says the cause and manner of death is undetermined. I spoke to Dr. Gregory Hess, the chief medical examiner for Pima County. So basically the problem with, um, you know, really decomposed and or fragmented skeletal remains is you may be able to tell that they are human based on the characteristics of the bone. But, um, you know, what did they die from? And uh, that is much more difficult unless you have, uh, you know, good evidence of something compelling. So, for example, let's say you have a skull and the skull has a bullet hole through it. And um, you believe that the person who was um, shot um, before they died, um, but, you know, if there's just no way for us to prove it, then typically we will call the cause of death undetermined because that's really the best we can do. Right. Um, unless there's something in the investigation of the scene or, or whatever remains of the remains that would uh, lead to some other kind of explanation. A bone sample was taken from the right femur and sent to a specialized lab in Texas for DNA profiling. We was suspect that these remains may be um, this particular missing person, but we're waiting on the uh, DNA comparison to prove it, right? So hopefully that's what it will tell us when we get that back um, from the lab that it was sent to. None of the other missing persons reports in the area matched these skeletal remains, aside from Jeanette's. They weren't old enough to be Paul Fugate's, and the hair clearly doesn't belong to Larry Cosden. When she disappeared, Jeanette was wearing jeans, a white t-shirt, red and white tennis shoes, and her long black hair was braided in the back. I asked her family members and Detective Hope what they believed. Absolutely no doubt in my mind that that's Janet, the way she had her her hair, the way my wife braided her hair. The one thing that makes us think that it has got to be her was uh, a shoe. So we found a shoe that looks like it used to be white and and red, and her Mm -hmm. shoes were white and red. My personal opinion, I think it's Janet, and I'm going off that braid. That's the only thing I'm basing that off of. And pretty soon, we're going to have those results back. But as it turned out, it would be a long time before anyone knew for certain whether or not they belonged to Jeanette. The bone sample would remain at the lab for almost a year before it was processed. In the meantime, I traveled back to the Chiricahuas to get a first-hand impression of the location where the remains were found by the field biologists. Among other things, I wanted to see how far, if indeed it was Jeanette, she would have had to walk to reach that destination where ultimately she was found dead. I'd been to Rustler Park twice, but I'd never walked to Long Park from there. I saw on the map that the distance from the fee box where Jeanette parted with her mother for the last time to Long Park was about 1.75 miles, or 2.8 kilometers. And even on paper, that seemed too far for Jeanette to travel on foot, based on what I'd been told about her physical abilities. 
I met with Detective Hoke and we made our way through the Chiricahuas and back up to Rustler Park. Where we're going to go from here. Southeast, right? We're going to go southeast of here. Yes, we're, we're going to round a bend and we're going to go quite a bit higher than we are right now. We are going to go to basically the highest point of this mountain. So we continued up towards Long Park, the more remote campground near the steep slope where the bones were found. Now, where she was found, remember I told you there was like a funny gate you have to go through? That's it right there behind you. The theory goes that if Jeanette walked up the forest road we just took, she would have walked through that gate and then proceeded towards that steep slope where perhaps she fell. Okay, I'm not going to take you all the way down there because right when you get about to that edge there, it goes down really steep at that point. And it was at that point, if you could picture this, Otavia, the remains that we brought out were kind of like right down in there, but at the bottom. The following is from the conversation we continued having in the car on the way back down the mountain. If it in fact is her, that's going to rule out that she was taken from this mountain. It still wouldn't rule out that that she wasn't abducted and taken from down here to there. But certainly will rule out that she was taken any further than that. Next, I got dropped off at Rustler Park. I wanted to hike up the Long Park myself to see what it was like. So with that said, I will drop you all off at the bathroom and you'll have your little hike there ahead of you. Thank you so much. When you get back out if you call like james said just to see that you guys made it off the mountain okay we'll do yeah and uh just out of curiosity i'm curious as to as to how long it's going to take you to make that trek uh it's about a mile and a half i'm thinking probably about 20 30 minutes but remember you're gonna not walk fast you're gonna try to replicate her her walking slow right um no i think i'm just gonna walk at our own pace you're just gonna walk and then consider her abilities Okay. I'm just going to walk at my own pace. I want to see what it's like for me. Okay. I'd be willing to bet if you walk at a pace, you're probably going to be winded by the time you get to the top. Probably. If you need anything else, give a holler. You have my phone number for when you get off the mountain. Accompanied by my fiance, I hiked to Long Park. It took us about 45 minutes. The hike was strenuous, both because it was uphill and because the altitude there is almost 9,000 feet. By the time we got to the top, we were both pretty winded and sweaty, despite it being cold. After that trip, I couldn't help but wonder how Jeanette, who weighed 250 pounds and was half blind, could have covered so much ground so quickly without being seen by anyone. Meanwhile, the remains were still unidentified, so I called the lab. I spoke to Dr. Bedoli, the director of the Center for Human Identification at the University of North Texas in Fort Worth. The Center for Human Identification is an accredited forensic laboratory that works closely with NamUs, the National Missing and Unidentified Persons Database overseen by the Department of Justice. We also do about 70-80% of all the cases in our national DNA databank for the rest of the country on missing persons through federal funding. Well, what would happen is um, uh, a medical examiner in Arizona, or it could be a crime lab or the police, 
might have some remains and they don't have the same capabilities to do DNA typing and or anthropology as we do. And so if they send it because of our funding through the federal government, we'll do it for free because most of the labs in the forensic arena in the U.S. don't have the full capabilities to do that kind of work because it requires looking at other kinds of technologies, one being mitochondrial DNA, the other, it also requires certain kinds of statistical analyses that, um, we, that you do for what's called kinship analysis. That's the kind of analysis required to identify Jeanette. It means that we have a DNA profile of the victim, but not the DNA of the missing individual to compare to directly. So then we look at family members who share some of their DNA signature with you because they're, they're related to you. Dr. Bedoli would not talk about the specifics of this case, but I learned a few things regardless. How do you extract the DNA from bones that have been sitting out uh, in the woods for three or four years? Same way you would do it for bones that you got received and um, immediately uh, after you know you found them, and maybe even a few days old. Um, so basically, we have to get the DNA out of the bone. So we clean the bones in a number of ways, and then we pulverize it into a fine powder because then you have a greater surface area because you have all access to the internal, external parts of the bone. And then we just uh, use, um, you know, chemicals and some heat and some enzymes to digest away and get the, the DNA into the solution. And then we do, we're ready to process it for the next step. Do the agencies classify cases? Like, do they tell you this is a suspected homicide or this, you know, do they well, for put labels on them? It doesn't matter one way or the other. It, but does it matter in terms of, like, how fast you process? Usually if bones are out three years in the ground, it's different than you found a woman who was raped yesterday. Mm-hmm. So, so you've got the immediate living person. So you have a little more time because this isn't an immediate solution situation because whoever killed the person, if they were murdered, that's years ago now. So it's a little different than a person was raped today. Uh, in this case, the, the remains were found in August of last year. So it's, 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 you consider it a normal time frame for them to still, you know, be um, unidentified at this point? Um, you see, that's another thing is you can process a case, uh, a sample very quickly and uh, but you may not make an identification because you need some other kinds of information and the main information is family members who have given reference samples so if there's no family member in the database and we have these remains we have the dna type it doesn't mean we're going to get a result because the problem is the family member is um may not be in the database so until we get uh, enough people donating you won't know. As far as I know, they are in the database, and they're they're just waiting to find out if it's their daughter that was found. I don't want to speculate. Basically, I wanted to know if her case had been processed, or you know. I um, I don't know. I didn't look it up in that because, as I said, uh, I don't want to get involved in the specifics of the case. It's probably a coincidence, but soon after I spoke to Dr. Bedoli, the DNA results came in. Hello. Oh, hi, Dr. Hess. Hi. How's your day going? Uh, so far, so good. Just got a little bit cloudy, which makes me happy. Oh, 
not here. <laughs> well, Good break from the sun. <laughs> right. I love those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I okay. So Janet was identified. It's not yes. a surprise. We we kind of yeah. figured it was her. Yeah. But uh, that is like the final first break in the case three years later. So yeah, I mean, it's really it, the timing of our last conversation is really kind of fortuitous because you know we knew that the identification would probably happen soon, and um, it did. Over four years after Jeanette disappeared from Rossler Park, her family finally had some answers. That was four long, painful years for Jeanette's family. And now, they finally knew that the bones found at Long Park over a year before belonged to Jeanette. I got on the phone with Fabian. Hello? Hey, hi, Fabian. How are you? Hi, Fabian. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How about you? Doing well. Um, so I talked to your dad. What do you think? Well, I don't know. Um, I guess, well, it's a double-edged sword because it sort of brings some closure, but it's also very upsetting that she was so close and we were never allowed to look up there. You can't really grieve until you know for certain. And now they did. But along with the grieving came some other feelings. Once it became clear that Jeanette was there all along, her family members were angry that they weren't allowed to join search and rescue in their search of the area where she was eventually found, in a time frame where she could have potentially been found alive. The search and rescue just decided that they didn't want any of that contaminated, that area contaminated, and they kept everybody out. Their assertion to me was, there is no way she is here on this mountain because they, they had searched everything. There's no way that she's in this mountain, dead or alive. The following is from an old interview with Detective Hope, before Jeanette was found. They were very, very, very focused on, what did you guys look at? Did you check this canyon? Did you check this? Did you check that? I, I, I don't know if they were looking hard enough. And I was trying to explain to the, to the family that, I understand your grief and what have you, but I can tell you, these people are very well trained in what they do. And they searched this area. I I'll mean, they searched the it. They searched it <laughs> yes, incredibly <laughs> good. They're used throughout the state of Arizona because they are so good. And this went on for days. This wasn't a matter of coming in here and looking for a few days. And that's well, okay. Well, now nah, she couldn't have made it any further than beyond this this area. Uh, we're going to stop. They continued to search and search. This went on for weeks. We exhausted our effort in this search. As time progressed, we started realizing more and more that they weren't really doing a whole lot. I don't think that they are well equipped to do their job. I really don't, which worries me. And it just hurts because if they were negligent in any way, shape or form, then it's possible that crucial clues have, have been lost and we'll probably never know what really happened. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month, So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. But Eduardo, always very pragmatic, admitted that nothing is ever good enough for your child. 
You'd think that finding the remains would answer some questions, right? But actually, it only raises more questions. It only tells us that Jeanette is dead, which everybody already knew. For starters, how could Jeanette, almost blind and in poor physical condition, hike almost two miles uphill in high altitude? A hike which most people, including myself, find strenuous. I'm going to try to proceed one step at a time in addressing all of my concerns regarding where she was found. First of all, the question of whether or not she could have physically walked there on her own. In some regards, Jeanette was like a toddler in the body of an adult. She was strong-willed, and sometimes it was extremely hard to make her do something that she didn't want to do. Sometimes she wanted to wander off, and it was hard to keep her from doing so. On a few occasions, she did wander off, and she got lost. She may have walked as far as one mile at most, according to family members, but that's on flat terrain, like, for instance, a suburban neighborhood. In the following clip, Detective Hoke is speaking with Jeanette's mother and sister a few days after she disappeared. She couldn't have got far, right? Under her physical state. If it's flat, she can go far. Yes, she can go far. She can? She can, I think. I don't know. Again, only in flat terrain. Okay, but we're talking about there, not flat terrain. In that scenario, what could have happened? What could have happened to Jeanette in this case? What I thought is that she tried to go that way because she gets lost and loses focus, but she couldn't have gone far. She couldn't have. So then the answer is she probably couldn't have got far. Correct. Uh-huh. Another thing about my sister is that if it's rough terrain, she won't even go there. She doesn't See? like to exert herself. And in this clip, detectives are speaking with Jeanette's father. That night, I walked as much as I could, but I couldn't make it uh, too far. The rain there is pretty rough, very hard. I know Janet would probably not have made it up. She gets tired very quickly, she's overweight, and she gets short of, she, she gets winded quite easily. But aside from being averse to walking, Jeanette also had a very slow pace. She liked to collect rocks, which distracted her from where she was going if something that caught her interest crossed her path. When she walked, she looked down at the ground and took a single step at a time, followed by a pause, a verbal count, and a random sound. At her pace, based on what Lydia and Xochitl told detectives in those early days, they would expect that by the time Lydia was done using the bathroom, she would have caught up with Jeanette before reaching the motorhome. Lydia expected her to still be visible, to not have made it around the bend. Even if they started searching downhill instead of going uphill right away, they should have caught up with her on the way to Long Park at some point. And don't forget, Jeanette was almost blind. She was completely blind on one eye, and on the other eye, she only had a limited vision. So she had vision of about uh, four inches by four inches. That's the only thing she could see. Another thing that's worth mentioning is that while her sight was poor, her hearing was very good. If she'd gotten lost, she would have screamed for her parents. If she was alive and well, she would have heard her parents calling. If she would have walked off and then was able to process in her mind, I'm in trouble, I'm lost. 
would she stop and start saying, Ama, Papa? Yes, she would have screamed. She would have screamed. Yes. Okay. She always does And we heard nothing. Nothing. Okay. I can give you examples. We're just walking, say, in a park. We're all together. There are people. And she loses sight of somebody and just doesn't see anybody. She will immediately start yelling. She calls my dad, Dadsies. She will start yelling, Dadsies! Dadsies! Very loudly. And my dad constantly just calls her, and then that's how she makes her way back. I would find her because I, we ha- I had a whistle for her that she understood. And when I whistled, she would, she would answer me. Now I was whistling and whistling and whistling all over the place. Jeanette was loud, noticeable. She drew attention to herself. Yet nobody saw her walk towards Long Park. But if she had somehow made it up there on her own, the question then becomes, how did she go undetected for so long? From the get-go, family members in search and rescue alike focused on Long Park as the direction where Jeanette could have headed to when she disappeared. That's because, from the fee box where she was last seen, if she had somehow missed the motorhome to her right, she would have kept going straight towards the forest road that leads to Long Park. First, her mother went there by herself. Remember, Jeanette's father, Eduardo, was in no condition to be hiking uphill. Lydia reached the top of the peak, very close to where Jeanette's body would be found, and called her name loudly. You went up there in in the dark by yourself. Uh Uh-huh. So, like, you you kept walking, he couldn't walk anymore, so you just kept going and you got to the top? Yes, I got to the top. But there was no one there. No one. Nothing at all. I was yelling for her at every step. I was yelling for her and nothing. After that, Jeanette's brother, Oscar, hiked up towards Long Park soon after he arrived. He went further than he believed Jeanette would have been capable of hiking and then turned around. I got far enough to where I was like, there's no way that she's going to be up here anymore. I know her condition. She would have come back right away, so. Lastly, when search and rescue arrived hours later, they hiked to Long Park, too, that very same night. And if Jeanette hiked to Long Park on her own two feet, why didn't the dogs track her scent there? In fact, it seemed like they detected her to a point and then lost her scent all of a sudden, as if she got into a vehicle. Uh, our chase dog teams from the yeah. Department of Corrections mm-hmm. are not showing that, that she went even off the roadway. Everything is yeah. showing that she was just in that one very short distance that I just described to you. Yeah, right. And that she was picked up. Sure, even dogs are fallible. They don't always find their target. There are a lot of factors that go into whether dogs can track a scent or not. Weather conditions, the dog itself. Like I mentioned in previous episodes, there were problems obtaining a proper scent item from the family. And I don't know how much of an impact this might have had on the usefulness of the dogs that look for a live person. But what about the cadaver dogs? They should have detected the presence of a body nearby. On top of that, when Larry Costin disappeared three months later, the area of Long Park was searched thoroughly by search and rescue teams with the assistance of human remain dogs. According to their notes, they would have searched right around where Jeanette was all along with cadaver dogs, with negative results. The reports also indicated that several teams searched the Long Park area once again the following day. And two days after that, firefighters that came to support the search efforts searched that area as well. And it wasn't just that the dogs didn't detect her. What was most puzzling to search and rescue 
was the complete absence of Jeanette's footprints or any other sign that a person walked off trail. This is Sergeant David Noland, search and rescue coordinator. She didn't take the road. I can tell you that. How do you know? Because uh, we had trackers on that road the very night that hiked all the way from Russell Park to Long Park, and there was no footprints. We had people tracking. Like I said, they were tracking, and they there was only two sets of footprints going down that road. So if she didn't take the road, what could she have taken? I mean, I guess you could have taken the trail. There's a, the Crest Trail that runs from Russell Park. It goes right by Long Park. And then if you got off the trail and walked right down the drainage to where the remains were found, you could do that. But I studied the map really closely for clues. You can look it up on our website, labyrinthpodcast.com. As you can see, the Crest Trail does eventually lead to Long Park. But if Jeanette took the Crest Trail to the location where her remains were found, she would have had to walk right by the motorhome where her father was sitting. Remember, he said he was watching out of his side view mirror for her safe return. At the end of that road where the motorhome was parked, there is a trailhead. It connects to the Crest Trail and heads either north or south. If she went south, she would have headed towards Long Park. It still doesn't explain how she got to that remote canyon. In order to do so, she would have had to walk off trail at some point. Either way, this route is much longer than the forest road, and in my opinion, this scenario is even less plausible. Not to mention, the Crest Trail was searched by Graham County Search and Rescue the following day, all the way to Long Park, and also by one of the other campers I spoke to. His name is Sean Stepp, and he was trying to give Search and Rescue a hand. I think a few of us, maybe Matthew and I, went up to the Crest Trail, which is just not too far from the camp, and we hiked along that, just kind of up the hill a little bit, and then we hiked all along to almost the north end of the mountain range there, and then dropped back down to the road, and then came back up the road. That's the only area I remember searching for sure. And I remember kind of crossing, kind of coming down off the trail to see in areas that were I couldn't see from the trail. Maybe she'd gotten off the trail or something. So I went and looked in those areas and didn't see anybody. And of course, we were yelling her name out. Starting at Rustler Park, there is technically a third way to reach Long Park. It's a ravine that follows the forest road. Think of it like a creek bed, usually dry, that runs parallel to Forest Service Road 42D. Technically, it would have been a little shorter and with less elevation gain, but also the grass would have been waist deep, with large boulders along the way and laden with fallen trees. But that was also searched by search and rescue teams looking for Jeanette, and months later, for Larry. Here's what another camper from that group, Mike Bonomo, had to say. So, um, it's surprising to you that she was found at Long Park, about a mile and a half from where you camped? Well, it is surprising to me because I saw the amount of effort that the sheriff's department and search and rescue put in. I mean, they searched, you know, every single direction, all the trails. They had dogs up there. And that was like immediately after she was missing, they were searching and searching and searching. And I know they searched that particular area. So, yeah, that surprises me that she was in the area somehow. The area where Jeanette was found was well within the search perimeter, but rescue teams never went down into that particular canyon. I mean, if we'd have found foot sign that showed that she 
walked off the road and dropped down into that canyon, we would have had people in there, but we never found any footprints to say that that's where she was at. Not to mention, after search and rescue left the area, the family took over. We kept searching. I searched far beyond what her physical capabilities were because we wanted to make absolute sure that it was no doubt in our mind that she had not kept going down a trail anywhere and we searched the canyons east and west of that mountain. Yeah. I'm pretty good physically. Now, in hindsight, knowing where Jeanette was found, certain things take a whole new meaning. When I read about them again or re-listen to some of the interviews, things stand out that perhaps I didn't think were significant before. First and foremost, the fact that one of the campers from the Tucson group, Matthew Levis, said he saw a Honda Civic coming from the direction of Long Park at about 8.20 p.m. Or that Jeanette's father remembered seeing a white pickup with a camper shell coming down from Long Park that night. A few people have suggested that perhaps Jeanette didn't hike all the way to Long Park, but rather her remains were taken there by water or carried by animals. So I looked into that possibility too. As far as water goes, that area is prone to sudden flooding from storms. But the canyon where Jeanette was found was up on a summit higher than where she disappeared from, and water flows downhill. If you look at the topographic map I provided, a few creeks flow down away from that long park area. Aside from the rainy seasons, the canyon where Jeanette's skeletal remains were found is typically dry or has just a little bit of water trickling through. It's choked with brush and ferns and all sorts of debris to the point where you can't even see the water in most parts. It's barely walkable, and it's not a creek that can wash a body away or carry anything large for any significant distance. Also, the remains weren't quite inside the creek bed. They were on the hillside near the creek bed. These bones were, were scattered about in a, in a fairly good size area. They searched that area really, really hard for a skull and for like the pelvic, you know, the heavier bones. And they weren't able to come up with them. So, I don't know. When a body has been left down in the elements for an extended period of time, it's common for the whole skeleton not to be recovered. However, I was curious as to why the larger bones, like the skull, were never found and how the remains that were found could have been scattered so far apart from one another. I wanted to know just how far parts of a body can be carried by animals. So I asked Dr. Daniel Westcott. He's the director of the Forensic Anthropology Center at Texas State University. So we operate a human decomposition facility, and then we also uh, operate a skeletal lab where we do research into human skeletal variation a human decomposition facility, also known as a body farm. It's one of the very few places in the world where bodies are deliberately placed outdoors so that their decomposition can be studied. I learned this from an episode of Radiotopia's podcast, Criminal. I'll include the link to that in the show notes. It's an excellent episode. Only researchers and law enforcement are allowed to go there, of course. And the purpose of these studies is to help law enforcement understand when and how someone may have died. Dr. Weskin and his team place a number of human bodies outside, where they remain anywhere from six months to several years, depending on the goals of their research. Apparently, we actually don't know much about how bodies decompose, 
So they conduct a series of experiments to see how changing the conditions affects decomposition. For instance, some bodies are wrapped in tarps, some are placed in the trunk of a car, while some are buried in shallow graves. But some are left out in the open, vulnerable to scavengers, in order to observe how wildlife might interact with the remains. What's the typical pattern that you see from animals? Uh, typically, the pattern you see from most animals is that they don't go more than, you know, oh, probably 25, 30 feet away from where the body originally was at. Uh, most of them are either eating the bones right there in place or, or you know, carrying them over to uh, like a shaded area or some kind of protected area where they can then chew on them. Unless there are large enough carnivores in the area then it's possible for the remains to be taken further away and potentially never found. I have personally never witnessed bears, but I know that from other colleagues that they have seen, uh, you know, bears uh, scavenge remains and, and lots of remains missing, which means that they probably carried them off. Now, how far they get carried off, I'm not positive. And the kind of scavengers you find in the Chiricahuas are coyotes, skunks, javelinas, raccoons, vultures, and, of course, black bears. I also learned something about that braid of hair. So typically what happens is, is that the, in a lot of cases, the hair will actually slough off fairly early in the decomposition process. And then the, from there, the bones typically get scattered away. In a lot of cases, the, the hair mat is actually probably a better representation of where the body actually decomposed than, than even the shelter remains. The dog is the one who, once again, found the hair first, so there's no way to know where it was originally. But if a human had found it first, it might have told us where Jeanette's body was when she died. According to Fabian, the pattern he observed was a concentration of skeletal remains close to a steep drop, and then the rest were scattered throughout. Perhaps this indicates that was a spot Jeanette originally fell to her death, and eventually many of her remains were washed further down the canyon by rain or moved by animals. Another thing I wondered about was if we could know for certain whether Jeanette died in the place where she was found, or if she was brought there at a later time. I asked Pima County Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Hess. One thing I was thinking about was determining whether those remains could have remained there for the entire duration while that person was missing. And I'm asking this because Search and Rescue had searched that area extensively and family members, other people had as well, and Janet had not been located by dogs or people. So that just raises the question, were they there the whole time or were they preserved someplace? Uh, Yeah, good question. Um, There isn't anything about those remains that would indicate they were preserved somehow, meaning that the person had been buried for a long time, somehow exhumed and put to that location. You know, the characteristics of the bone would be different. Certainly there's no way for us to tell if they had been moved or, you know, put there from some other location. There isn't anything specific about them that would lead us to believe that, per se. But certainly I couldn't rule that out. Jeanette's remains being identified officially closes the investigation into her disappearance, although it had already effectively been closed long before. And yet, there are no certainties as to what happened to her. Even Detective Hope doesn't know what to think. I don't know if this was foul play. I don't know if it was strictly an accident that she she just got lost, wandered off. I don't know if the parents' time frame is correct. Because what I'm thinking is, 
when they got up there, like they said, if you go with the event that they say, and again, I have no reason to think they're lying. Well, then it didn't give her that window. That time frame is about a 10 minute window is what mom said that she had seen her. And just to clarify, the time frame Lydia gave was actually only one to two minutes that she was in the bathroom, not 10 minutes. There was one more question I had for the medical examiner. Did the agency that uh, gave you these remains, did they give you like any notes? Did they say that it's a suspected homicide or do they communicate that kind of information to you? Um, honestly, looking at our information, our report, we have very little here. We, we never received any kind of official um, police report from the Cochise County Sheriff's Office. Uh, uh, well, we don't have any, any official report from them, just, just a few photographs that they took uh, during their recovery. Oh. That concerned me because while I'm no expert, my understanding is that in some cases, the circumstances of a case will drive how the examination is conducted. For instance, the kind of testing that's done on the remains, and therefore it can influence the outcomes of what a medical examiner might determine to have happened to a person, how they died. But in this case, law enforcement didn't provide any context to the medical examiner, who didn't know anything about the circumstances of Jeanette's disappearance. Perhaps this meant that the sheriff's office wasn't searching for answers beyond a DNA match. Then again, perhaps it wouldn't have mattered at this point. Any existing clues have long since disappeared, and there isn't much you can do when there is no evidence. It's just incomplete, fragmented skeletal remains, and we really don't know exactly you know, how she got to where she was, and there wasn't anything distinctive about those remains that would indicate how she died. Last fall, Jeanette's remains were released to a funeral home in Tucson, and her family opted to have her cremated in order to take her ashes home to New Mexico. I went to Tucson to meet with her whole family. We gathered in the living room of their vacation rental and talked for hours as Jeanette's ashes sat in the room with us. Above all, I wanted to know what they believed happened to Jeanette. And as it turns out, they don't all see eye to eye. Here are Fabian and Sochi. She would have never just gone up there voluntarily. Well, some of us are more conspiratorial than others. <laughs> uh, I don't think that she would have uh, got there by herself. I personally have categorized it as one of two ways. Either she, no kidding, just wandered off by herself and my parents just didn't see it. Or it is, as the investigators told us, that maybe somebody did take her and then realized she wasn't normal and then did away with her. I doubt we'll ever know. I think that whoever took her, which I think someone took, because if you saw the geography there, she couldn't have got that far in her condition. I think it's someone that knows the area, and I think it's someone that knew that that point was not visible. But nowadays, Jeanette's father sees things differently. He now believes that Jeanette could have reached Long Park on foot after all. So there's still a possibility that someone could have taken her there, but I believe now that it's a probability that she made it there on her own because that was the straight line. You know, having a tunnel vision, you don't see anything to your right. You don't see anything to your left. You just see that one spot of the road, and that's where she uh, very likely kept going and going and going. 
I just don't see that there's a, there would be a purpose for somebody to just take somebody up there and just kill them for no reason at all. That, that is hard to, for me to accept. I asked Lydia the same question. What do you think happened? I think someone took her. That's what I think. Because there were no signs that she'd even gone through there. They only found my footprints up there. The emergency personnel that went up there only found my footprints because I'd gone up there. But there weren't any of hers past a certain point. That's why I think she got to that spot, they grabbed her and took her. That's what I believe. Because there were no footprints of her anywhere. Well, again, here you see that we don't we don't come with a, the same speech. Sure. Yeah. She has suspicions. I don't. But that's just my way of thinking. You made it up there mm-hmm. with a lot less problems than she did. But you could see how somebody else in, in better shape than me could make it up. And she was in better shape than I was. But back in the day, Jeanette's father told investigators the following. Do you think Sar could have underestimated her abilities and the, and the circle should have been bigger? Um, like I said, they, they plotted out a radius of... Well, you told me it's about a third of a mile. We went all the way up to the two miles. And at least, at least I was satisfied that she could not have made it up there. It's not that easy. And you know how the terrain is there. And the rocks, you just slide and, and then fall down. I, I couldn't make it up walking. And she's about my build. So she couldn't, I don't think she could have made it all the way up to the, to the two mile radius. You just don't think that she would be capable of climbing anything. When they went hiking, said Eduardo, they practically had to drag Jeanette up with them. Back to the present, though, I asked Eduardo how important it is for him to know the dynamics of what happened. Will I ever know what happened? No, no. Is it settled in my mind? I I think so. I I think I want to believe that it was her by herself and not believe that it was somebody else. If I do, it's not going to take me anywhere. But if somebody finds out something else, sure, I want to know about it, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in my mind, it's a closed case. I have accepted what has has happened. Here's Fabian's take on the situation. It's just easier to believe that she maybe got lost there as opposed to trying to, Mm -hmm. you know, try to think that, that somebody would have taken her there. But uh, the, the frustrating part is that we just won't ever know. In the next episode of The Labyrinth, I want to share my personal theories of what may have happened to Jeanette. 